0: We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast, and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends, because it matters what you think.
1: We have tonight as our topic, justice, uh, politics and justice, you know, uh, in terms of what Aquinas he had to say about these topics and what they might teach us today. Millions of Americans went to the polls today to vote. It's election day. But let's take a minute just to ask what what is voting. What, I mean, what did you do? What did our fellow citizens do today? In fact, what what is voting? We're all taught that this is something important to do, and. Probably our American conscience, you know, pricks us if we if we fail to do it. But why? Why do it? What's its What's the point? Try to get the out of office. What's to that? Try to get the clowns out of office. <laughs> that nah, get, get the clowns out of office. That's not a bad reason to vote. Mm-hmm. Preference revelation for how we want the country run. Sure. Right. So it's the opportunity for each and every individual citizen, guided by his own conscience, to make a decision in secret, or let's say just outside of the eyes of others. For what? You said preference. What other motives might one have for voting? That's a good question. I mean what 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 is what does the voter go into the booth to do? What's his what's his goal? What's best for the common good, really? What you believe is Well, not just what you believe. Subjective, actually. Right. Which is not what he said. Right. This is an important question to ask because it is important to determine what is it that the voter goes into the voting booth to do? What's he choosing? What good is he inclining towards in that moment? His own particular good? The common good? Some other good? It's important to know, because on the one hand, if it's just preference, the question is, well, what voting is then is you go into the booth, vote preference, let's say your own particular good, with your fingers crossed that 50 plus 1% of the people voting that day are are making the same decision in terms of whatever the the state, local state or national policy will be in terms of protecting or providing for your own interest. Or does the person go into the booth voting to preserve and protect the common good, which is something different. It's not to say that the common good isn't his good, it is his good, but it's also the good of others, the good that he shares with others. So it's not a question of, fingers crossed, hoping 50 plus 1% of the people vote the same way, but already making a decision for what is common, which he does in cooperation with others. Certainly, I think within, over the course of the 20th century, you can see that there was, has been, I think, a gradual shift in what it is that within democratic societies, people going into the voting booth to choose. Even when we talk about rights or justice, justice is always you know, defined as you know, uh, rendering the other his due. But even over the course of the 20th century that, that gets turned around a bit. And you can see this in rights language, early 20th century, UN Declaration of Human Rights. What are the rights that are enumerated? Well, it's those things that in fact We share in common. It's kind of common kinds of activities based on a common human nature. What is it that human beings do by nature? Well, X, Y, and Z, and those are the things that are are enumerated as the kind of what we have rights to, what we can have a right claim toward. Very common things rooted in our common nature that are easily recognized or ought to be easily recognized by others. But over the course of the 20th century, human rights become individual rights. There's a kind of slide. And even when we hear that term, individual rights, we still think that there's something good and still something worth preserving and protecting. And I'm not saying it's not, but it's a shift. It's different. Then the claim for justice isn't so much anymore my guaranteeing that the claim of the other is met but justice becomes an exercise of self-expression, of individual expression, that I stand up in the public square to claim my own right. And government then, law, and all of the the, kind of the machine of the state exists, not to promote a common effort so much to secure the common wheel, but becomes the guarantor of what I stand up and claim for myself. And that's a different thing. So then what does the voter do? What do we, what do, we do when we go into the booth? Are you specifically choosing to promote and preserve the commonweal? Or we're going there in an act of self-expression, which we hope. You know, at least half the country self-expresses in the same kind of way. <laughs> well, that's another question that I'm sure we'll be discussing <laughs> days on end. What I'd like to propose tonight is that Saint Thomas and the medievals had a very good answer to this question uh, because they had a much thicker sense of what justice requires—that justice is never something that just exists between two people, but there's a whole network, a whole complex network of relationships in which even the simplest of exchanges between one individual and another obtains and shapes what justice is all about. And that's why I asked for a board tonight because it's much easier for me to sketch this out and and to represent it by something visual, and we can talk about it. Aquinas had in view, in terms of talking about justice, what I like to call, at least that's the way I depict it, is kind of the triangle of justice. Justice is never simply just for Aquinas and for the tradition that he inherits and helps to perfect. a simple rendering of the other his due. It recognizes that one person rendering another his due, which is to say, to honor his just claim, some right, again, it takes place within a whole complex network of social and political relationships that have something to do even with that simple exchange. And so that's what I'd like to try to depict here. One individual. I can't tell you the last time I wrote the chalk. which is great. Another individual. One individual rendering another his due, and vice versa. That's kind of the very basic sense of justice. But that's only one form of justice. According to Says, there are actually three, what he calls species of justice. Three Kinds of relationship, or the three kinds of justice, because of the three kinds of relationships that obtain within human society, within especially political society. This is the most basic. One individual rendering the due to another. This is what Aquinas, in the whole tradition, calls commutative exchanges. And therefore, the justice that obtains here is community justice, this is the justice that obtains in simple exchanges. I need a pair of shoes. You have a pair of shoes. I'm willing to give you five chickens for those. That's agreed upon price. You know that's an example of economic work or community justice, community exchange. But what Aquinas helps us to see is that these two individuals do not exist in isolation. There are no mere individuals. Each of these individuals, always and everywhere, over the course of their entire lives, are parts of greater social wholes the family to which each individual belongs to. The political community to which each individual belongs. And those two relationships, especially, have something to do and something to say, especially to shape not only these individuals, but how it is that they interact with each other. There's never, ever, any simple exchange between two mere isolated individuals. Even the simplest of exchanges already takes place, again, in a complex network of familial and political relationships. And that's what we have to sketch out then. the rest of this. Because over and above what it is that the individual may possess as his own particular good, whatever this individual might possess as his own particular good, which then becomes the object of their exchanges, There is a good that they both share in common, the common good of their own families, but here, the common good of the political community. To the political common good represented, not abstractly, but in the person or the body of the political authority. The one who, by legitimate means, is chosen to exercise a kind of authority in the political whole, on behalf of the whole, to coordinate the activity of all the individual members towards the accomplishment, protection, and enjoyment of the political common good. And this creates two more, two other, two particular species of justice. On the one hand, you have the individual rendering the due to the political community, So what the part owes to the whole, or what the individual citizen or subject owes to the republic or to the, the realm. And for Aquinas, this is called just justice proper, or, Legal justice, general justice is another term. So already this is something bigger than just a commutative exchange. This is kind of political obedience of the, the individual to the political authority. What is it that the individual owes to the political society to which he belongs? which represents and holds a good for him that's not just his, in particular, as an individual, but as a member of a society. It's a good that he shares with others. But that's not the only way that justice works or moves within political societies, you also have the obligation, injustice of the political power, the political authority, to render what's due to individual citizens, the members of the community. So this is called distributive justice. Now we hear that sometimes, and we can get, get a little confused because, for us, distributed can suggest something like just like the doling out of individual particular goods. And that's part of it. but That's not the whole of it. What the political authority, in a sense, distributes to all the individuals is a just and proportionate share in the political good, whatever that good is represented by. Sometimes that's going to be material, physical goods. But it's also something like peace or security, safety, share in the market education, health, these kinds of things which aren't exactly, you know, cash distributions. So that helps to round out or kind of completes this this triangle here. For Aquinas trying to figure out or to describe how it is or the intense kind of network. Of familial and political relationships in which individuals those goods they bring with them to simple acts of exchange or of commutative justice. Aquinas also sees that in exercising justice in each of these three species, commutative, legal, and distributed, there's also three different kinds of prudence that obtain here, too. Another of the cardinal versions. Here, it's just prudence, simply said, kind of the daily prudence in individuals interacting with each other. But in terms of exercising legal or general justice, there's another kind of prudence, which are quite called political prudence. This is the prudence that citizens, that individuals cross citizens exercise when they interact with the rest of the political whole, providing a kind of (coughs) obedience on the one hand to political authority, but acting as a citizen in cooperation with other citizens. There's another good that has to be considered here, not just their own individual particular good, but the good of the political whole, which they care for when they act in harmony with others in view of the common. And what about the political authority? In its work of distributive justice, making sure that all of the parts of the whole, or all the individuals, all the citizens have a just and equitable participation in the political common good. This is what Aquinas calls recognition groups. which for Aquinas is the highest kind, because it has as its object the political common good And it's a kind of prudence that only the political authority can exercise because it answers questions that only the political authority is forced to answer. How to organize the life of the whole to the benefit of all of its parts. Individuals' parts don't always have to ask themselves that question or answer it, but the political authority does in a particular kind of way. That's why it has its own specific and for Aquinas' highest form of prudence. So for Aquinas, it's important to see that even the simplest of commutative exchanges, shoes for chickens, (laughs) is a really kind of three-dimensional act. It's never just a case of an individual rendering the due to another individual or meeting the claim of another individual. But that act itself takes place within a complex relationship of goods, particular goods of individuals considered by individual, common goods of individuals considered as members of their families, common goods of individuals considered as parts of the political community, enjoys the political common good. No individual meets another individual simply a qua simple individual, but as one who's always, at every moment of his or her life, engaged in these, this complex network of relationships in which three kinds of justice and also three kinds of prudence obtain And what makes this real are to outline, see, underscore, the reality and the, the intensity of these relationships. Is the judicial that or juridical? power that the political authority exercises even over acts of community justice? If, in some exchange, one individual injures another individual in some kind of act of injustice, it's not just the individual who's injured, that suffers injury. Requenstein understands it's this entire network. And that's why it is that the political authority can come in to exercise juridical power, not only to restore the balance of justice between the two individuals, but also then to punish the malefactor. Why? Well, not simply because he's injured one other individual, but because through his crime or act of injustice, he's disrupted the good order of the whole. And therefore, the authority of the whole steps in and acts. And that's how justice is restored. Not just when, if I steal something, is restored to the other. But because of the injury suffered by the whole, not only is restitution made, but some punishment is suffering. But quite a sense that this whole network is the <coughs> justification for political authority adjudicating cases of injustice among just individuals. Not simply when an indi- individual does wrong to the common good, or in cases which we're <laughs> rightly suspicious of today when the political authority Commit some act of injustice against an individual. But even when individuals act unjustly against each other, it's still rightly the political authority that intervenes to restore justice not just to this relationship, but to the (laughs) full. Which returns us to our question of voting. and what the individual citizen goes into the voting booth to do. What good is he loving? What good is he seeking to protect and to promote and to preserve? Answers. It's just his own individual particular good. Okay, sure. Okay. Well, it isn't kind, yeah, that's right. Uh, I would say that's probably, yeah, I don't know if I've thought about it that way. That could be that one might say, like, the exercising of juridical power here to adjudicate cases of injustice among individuals. I don't think about that more. yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a way. You could see it as like a species of distributive justice. I mean, it is what you know, happens. But it has to be distinct because it isn't always simply the, the solving of problems. <laughs> That's the work of distributive justice. It's actually a positive work that uh, it's, in fact, it's the kind of justice proper to the political authority in its work of coordinating cooperation among individuals for Establishment protection promotion, and, and that has up to positive expressions. The a derivative is kind of a negative one. It's a it steps in when there's a problem, um, and that's so that. that, that, that it's why it stays distinct in my own mind. But yeah, there's a way you could see it as a, an exercise, of a, a part of a cons- constitutive part of distributive justice. Yeah. So, again, what's the voter doing? What's he loving in the voter? Um, perhaps the country or like, the proper region that they're voting for. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's not only, it's not just what's the object of community exchange here, right? It's not just, you know, his own particular good or another neighbor's particular good. It has something to do up here, right? I mean, there's an aspiration here. We do know that, legal and general justice for the individual is more like following the law. You know, The political authority sets the kind of standards of justice through the, ex- the promulgation of law. It kind of creates the stage on which individuals then can step confidently in their exchanges with each other, following the law. They know that because they're following the law, they are promoting the political common good living in peace and order with each other, even if at every moment they're not clued in, specifically, to the political economy good. But they exercise political prudence when they do follow the law. But that's not exactly what goes on in the road, right? I mean, it's something a little bit more. We just follow the law? Is it just an exercise of political prudence? And mm-hmm. the and the house really follow the law, mm-hmm. what's that you say the house represents? no i don't making <laughs> <laughs> there there <be> no claims <laughs> as to the virtue of uh, <laughs> of our uh, of our politicians mm-hmm. what's interesting about <coughs> voting <laughs> to my mind is that it represents a unique instance in which individual citizens exercise a kind of right Which is proper for political authority, the mayor, the legislator, because they are representatives of the political common good. They act on behalf of the political common good for the sake of individuals in the whole. But it seems like within democratic societies that the franchise is given also to individuals whether it's every two years or four years or however long they're not just following the law and being good citizens but actually they're asked to make a choice even if it's just choosing your elected representatives which is more than just following but they're actually looking at or should be looking at this good here and how best to act in regard to it. Not out of their self interest, as if it's just some community exchange, but as a real act of recognitive prudence. It's, it's the citizens exercising the sovereignty of the state in that one moment. It's collective, but each voter you know, participates that, in that in a very particular way, and the argument I would make, which I think Aquinas helps us to see, is that when the voter steps into the booth, what justice, what prudence is he exercising? If you look at it closely, it's this. which then makes certain demands on individual citizens. The demands that we expect of our own political authorities to act on behalf of the common good, to act not of their own particular interests or personal interests, but to act on behalf of the whole, in regard to the whole, for the promotion of the whole, the good of the whole, and not their own just particular individual good. But not to the exclusion of the individual good, but the challenge there is to align the pursuit of their own individual particular good with the good of the whole, which in democracy almost forces or should force individual voters to do, to look beyond their own particular interest, to look specifically at the good of the whole, and to make an act, a sovereign act, in regard to it, even if it's again just the choosing of leaders, but it can also often be, I mean, on policy questions, we do. Voting on constitutional amendments, voting on certain policy positions to either confirm or reject acts of legislatures. These are also things that citizens in democracies from time to time vote on careful study of Aquinas on justice and to see how it is that justice is really three-dimensional for Aquinas but every act of commutative justice is within a network of distributive and legal justice and every act of prudence you know has in the background you know supporting and justifying acts of legal or I'm sorry political prudence and regnative prudence <clears throat> That it does enlighten how it is that we understand the functioning of our own democratic society and what it is that individuals do when they're asked to vote and go into the booth. What good are they loving? What good are they promoting? What good are they preserving? And how good are voters at <laughs> exercising this kind of prudence? I think it's a challenge for us even to ask the question today, are voters even prepared to do that? I mean, are we formed to do that? What is that we're encouraged to do, I think is a challenge to our whole society and our own political regime. That if in fact we're failing as voters to rise to this kind of act, that betrays a certain weakness in the health of life, the political health and life of the nation itself. I might just leave it there. <laughs> That's a lot more to say. And talk about, but why don't we stop there? I'm happy to ask, or if you've got questions, I'm happy to answer them on this or other topics. Yeah. I think it's it's, it's certainly... This is a very interesting and good model, but is this really accurate to the state of political life and the state of political affairs? We can talk about all these forms of justice, how this all works together, it's a beautiful model, but if it in no way actually describes the political regime or the multiple facets of political life, what ethical force does it then have upon our actions if political authority rarely ever acts in the common good instead of on private goods. Mm -hmm. Various acts of Congress regulations. Yeah, so I don't think uh, either Aristotle or certainly not Aquinas Mm -hmm. is setting out just to present a kind of descriptive of Mm -hmm. politics as they find it. Mm -hmm. No, they're reflecting on human nature, you know, and what are the goods for which uh, we act, goods that are providentially inscribed in creation, Goods that are good qua me, goods that are mine qua member of family, goods that are mine qua member of a political society. How do those three kinds of goods come together? How do I live my life in such a way with my neighbor, within the family, within the political society, pursuing those goods? What kind of family life do families need to live together? What kind of political authority needs to be exercised to govern all that well? Uh, to create an order within which individuals, qua individuals, qua family members, qua citizens, you know, can pursue all of those goods in a coherent life, you know, lived with others. That's what Aquinas is trying to do. That's the picture he's painting, which then becomes the measure against which you then judge yeah, experience. Yeah. Or our current politics. Yeah. So it's it's only against, I would say, it's against this, that we can look at our current moment and, and measure, you know, how well do we? If this is true, is this, if this is a kind of accurate sketch of the relationship of the, of the kinds of goods that are woven into creation, the kinds of goods that perfect us, qua rational animals, um, then how are we doing? <laughs> you know in terms of our own current political life. And Aquinas has accounts for this, and so does the whole of the Western tradition. I mean, uh, it's not only an account of how this is supposed to work well, but they have accounts of how it falls apart. So I mean, uh, tyranny, for example. I mean, for Aquinas, I mean, tyranny is simply when the political authority loves this good, not for its own sake, but for his own sake. He loves it like an individual loves his own individual good. And once that happens, well, then the whole commonness of political society, the commonness of of the political common good, is it loved in its commonness, but it's treated as someone's own particular good. And the thing is, the individual can love it that way, too. So, for example, the voter (laughs) who goes into the booth, you know, voting his own particular good. Again, fingers crossed that fifty plus one percent, you know, also vote that way. It's not a real act of cognitive prudence. There, it's just—I mean, he's just treating it as another commutative exchange, and not recognizing the political common good as something real and universal and shared. It's not only his good, but the good of others too. So it has to be loved and shared, but also acted in terms of political prudence as shared, and I would say, in the act of voting, that kind of rare instance of an individual exercising regnative prudence towards the common good. Again, loving it in its shared good. Loving in the political good what's common about it, not just what's good particularly for me. Loving it so that others can love it too. (laughs) <laughs> As I said earlier, it means yeah, yeah. It's not clearly me that a lot of our own political officials you know, understand their own job. No, no. At least against this. Um, I mean, when Thomas comments on these things, he, he, uh, I mean, follows the Aristotelian line, more or less, in terms of like the kinds of regime, you know, monarchy would be the best democracy among the less, less better. (laughs) Um, And that's from a, a kind of point of view of efficiency, you know how best and how quickly and how securely to get to kind of justice in terms of the political common good. There is a, a kind of bias worked into the way the question is answered and asked in uh, in the classical world that fewer hands on the uh, on the political common good are better, you know, for it. And there's certain truth to that. Uh, it's easier uh, to secure a kind of Justice, if there's only one person making decisions for the whole, instead of the whole making decisions for the whole. There's no question about that. But that's not the only way to ask to ask the question uh, as to kind of the, the good, the goodness of various regimes or the the uh, even the morality of various regimes. So I mean one stab at this was uh a long series of articles that were published in the first editions of the, the Thomist in the 1930s and 40s by Mortimer Adler and Walter Farrell. Uh, Farrell was a Dominican who taught at the House of Studies in Washington. Mortimer Adler, at that time, was a, you know, a young, hot shot you know, Jewish Aristotelian philosopher uh, who went on to have a very storied career and influence uh, in the United States. Uh, but they had a very—they had a series of articles uh, just in terms of the theory of democracy, where they wanted to flip the question, uh, kind of conceding that yes, monarchy in that sense is the best regime in terms of its efficiency. But they ask if the exercise and development of prudence is something that's instrumental and integral to not only the happiness of individuals but also the happiness of society. So well, there's a, 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 science, a kind of health in society where it's, it's not just one person exercising food as well, that everybody <laughs> exercising as well. That that contributes to the health, you yeah. uh, know, and for that morality of a people. But then there is something about democratic societies, insofar as it, 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 it diffuses kind of regnative decision making among many. And if they can be formed to exercise prudence for the sake of the whole, then I mean, that should be also seen as integral and, uh, to the health and, and happiness of, of that society, and that it's not monarchy there that serves that, but rather but democracy. So it's another way of looking at the, at the question. I think it's interesting. I, I'm, I don't know if that's definitive, but it's, it shows that there are different ways of asking the question. And for Aquinas himself, uh, when he kind of provides his own answer to to the question, he he favors something like a a, a mixed regime, where you have a little, you know aspects of all three kinds. Um, So there is something monarchical, kind of aristocratic, but also democratic in the best kind of of regime, Um, which is interesting, because the only thing that he would have known that had that kind of governing structure is the the, the (laughs) The religious order to achieve a law. Because uh, there was the, there was no political society organized in that kind of way at that time. Although when you look at the three kind of principal kinds of regimes, I and mean, you can use your imagination to put them together. But there are elements of all those things. Like, uh, uh, the parties voted. Within the order, many times. Yeah. And so we've had a kind of experience of this. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, she brings <laughs> them up. Seems like that, that, that it's historically it. So is there which would incline the to that way and not the or... I would say the distinction between, like, like I mean, you just heard, the distinction you're making there between, like, the individual and the aristocrat, um, or basically you're talking about, like, non-aristocratic, non-aristocratic individuals be more inclined to... Which the common good than, than okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, from Aquinas' point of view, um, on the one hand, uh, he would say every individual, regardless of kind of rank, whether it's you know you're part of the demos or you're an aristocrat or the king, uh, you all love the common good as your better good. Uh, so that, and that's established by nature. The only thing that's distinct here is something something—an accidental difference in terms of how you're related to the common good in terms of your in sense, position in society. Um, so whereas one by nature, all are to love the common good equally, some because of their status, because of either wealth, virtue, talent, uh, those kinds of things. Um, for Aquinas, to say that that, that defines you to become more, not less. Um, because, you, because you live in a sense closer to the political authority, you imitate the political authority more, you, you have more responsibility because of the status of your wealth or virtue. Uh, you live toward and you act on behalf of the the common good in a more intense way than, let's say, an ordinary citizen. That's how Aquinas would see it. Um, so, if in fact aristocrats or, or whoever are are living apart from, or in a kind of betrayal of the common good, I mean that that's that's not by nature. I mean that that's by by pride and sin, blinding them uh, to the responsibilities of the, of their status of. of of their position within the whole which for Aquinas would oblige them to live more in regard to the common good than than the ordinary citizen which also say in service to the ordinary citizen Because of, of those kinds of resources that they have, whether they have been material or spiritual, mm-hmm. they can act in such a way on behalf of the whole and affect more people than just ordinary citizens. Which so, that's what that that would be a point of way of looking at it. So um, so with, for instance like large wealthy corporations would they would they have a stake in using recommended food? for mm Yeah, I mean whether it's individuals or collectives like that within the whole, uh, yeah, I think Aquinas would regard them kind of in a similar kind of way, that that incorporation within the whole doesn't remove you from the overall order. And is that, so does that also work on micro scale? So in, for instance, a family or a company, is it the same? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could, first of all, it's, limited by space (laughs) So this is two-dimensional, but you also can imagine, you know, all of these individuals I mean coming out of the board going up and down. I mean creating a whole sphere and within that if Let's say the common good is kind of in the middle, you know, uh, it's kind of the core of of the whole Um, But Aquinas recognizes that there are any number and there's one we kind of left out I left out there are ways in which individuals can form different groups within the whole to meet let's say it's not the political common good itself but let's say some kind of intermediate good you know that contributes to the flourishing of the whole group. so let's say like academic societies fraternal organizations trade unions trade guilds you know all of these kinds of things where people come together to cooperate in one particular task to one particular good—it's not the political common kind of good, but it's something. It's in between the individual good and the political common kind of good, which actually contributes to the the flourishing of the whole. And the prudence that uh, that obtains there, Aquinas calls military prudence. This is, a, this is kind of what armies do, right? I mean, armies are not the political society, but they represent a the kind of good that's more than just the individual. It's really a concentrated kind of cooperation for the preservation of the whole, but it's not. So it's somewhere in between. And so Aquinas looks at the military as a kind of icon there for these mm-hmm. groups, voluntary organizations that can exist within the political community that foster a part of its life for the good of the whole. Yeah. Um, sorry. I Mm-hmm. And it seems to me I'm not like a politics student, but based on like my eighth grade civics class, the like the argument for democracy then would be not one of efficiency, but one of like checks and balances. Mm-hmm. Kind of mm-hmm. Does economists like touch on that kind of mm-hmm. aspect, or like its lack, or how to like integrate that into the monarchy? Yeah, no? I mean it's hard because on the one hand, there's the temptation to. Uh, have Aquinas say all of our favorite things, right? <laughs> the things that we stand for. Um, so you don't find that I—I've not found something as explicit as that because Aquinas lived in the 13th century, and those kinds of societies just didn't weren't there yet. Uh, but again, uh, Aquinas theorizes about this, you know, even though he did, he you couldn't point to France or Italy at the time as, as being examples of this, or the little duchies and kingdoms all in between. I mean, he's cousins with you know, the King of France. You know, he's you know, minor nobility you know, down in, in Italy. So he knows all of these things. Uh, not a big fan of Emperor Frederick, uh, who you know, waged war against the papal states or the papal power at the time, uh, in which one of Aquinas' own brothers died you know, in, in battle. Um, but again, I think it's something of the, of the genius of the order to which he felt drawn and entered where you did have this kind of structure. You know, uh, there, when you look at the, the structure of the Dominican governance and that's kind of, it's really remarkable that it's a, it's a, it's a religious order within the church <laughs> that develops and is kind of uh, decades and centuries ahead of its time in terms of dispersing the exercise Of of political authority we do have a master of the order but we also have provinces regions but also each individual house has its own superior there's voting that takes place at all levels higher authority kind of checks you know or confirms the exercise of the lower authority the higher authority is limited their term limits Terms are short, and superiors are a term limited, so there's high turnover uh, of those who exercise uh, authority. And that goes back to the 13th century. But again, within the Dominican order, again, it's, it's kind of unique for religious purposes. But again, Aquinas would have experienced this. Uh, he was elected to provincial chapters, general chapters. He participated in those, was assigned various offices within the order again, for short periods of time. Um, and so something like, uh, yeah, checks and balances is, is something I th- he certainly experienced within the order and I think, you know, could imagine, you know, existing within, kind of in the secular realm. Which is why he he does talk about, I mean, that's, that is the mixed regime. I mean, when you, when, when you look at what he says about that, in kind of the different instances of, a, of kind of monarchial, aristocratic, democratic exercises of authority within one political community. That's basically what's happening there. You have checks and balances, one against another, um, kind of fulfilling their respective roles within the, within the political community, even though he may not use that term in that language. Aquinas is this, as the final end of the political community, its own good, that to which you know, everything is ordered, that to which all appetite <laughs> is elicited to move towards, that's the founding principle. And that, you have to kind of have a Certain understanding of kind of the Aristotelian sense of cause and for causes, and why final cause is the primary cause, uh, you know, that for which the other causes move, final cause, uh, here within human society, in terms of ordering, even in the pursuit of individual goods, it's the political. which helps when you get a better sense of this, I mean, then I think, yeah, uh, more, more modern theories, I mean, begin to take on a different kind of, or you see them from different perspectives. And, uh, and um, yeah, why beginning with the individual good uh, might not be the most helpful <laughs> in order to achieve peace within a political community. Because if you don't have a common, one, numerically one common good that belongs to all, and is shared by all, um, then to cobble together a political community uh, of disparate individual goods, well, I mean, you've got kind of disorder built right into the very foundation of the the community itself. but without separating it from us, because the political common good is our good. Yeah. Like the, the common good of Charlottesville is the common good of the citizens of Charlottesville. The common good of Chicago is the good of Chicago. It's not some other abstract. It's not the regime. It's not the mayor. It's not but it's, it's the good of the, of the whole of which, you know, the citizens, you know, constitute. So, if the Congress was like what's best for the majority of people, and if all the people It's not just the majority of these, the views. So the whole. Like the whole of the people. If all the. Mm-hmm. Well, so then I guess, I guess that would be one of my question. Like, mm-hmm. like, when you say the whole of the people, like obviously people are going to have different yeah. things that will help them. So, like, wouldn't it then kind of put the majority? Like if, if 90% of people are helped by this bill, it kind of turns kind of hurt. The good also, yeah. well that'd be, it'd be the question of what kind of hurt uh, is it real hurt or is it just kind of a prudential decision that people good people could disagree about um, uh, I mean there's a way in which every kind of attempt at the at promoting and preserving the common good is going to fall short simply because we're imperfect uh, creatures. Um, But that's just it, there's still a recognition that even if in every instance, the fullness of the political common good isn't realized and enjoyed by all. I mean, that's really kind of the story of of nations too. I mean, to make sure, I mean, it's the work of progress of a political community to make sure that that happens, you know, more and more. Um, I mean, that's the story of our own country, right? From, from a particular point of view. Um, but it is the case that in terms of uh, what the political authority has to decide in the exercise of, of its authority to coordinate the activity and life of the community towards the building up of and the enjoyment of the common good because those themselves are prudential um, contingent kinds of, of of decisions, they can be wrong. Uh, they can be approved upon. They can fall short. Some can be better than others. Um, and good people can disagree as to their effectiveness. Uh, that's kind of what we also kind of duke it out. <laughs> you know, in populations in democratic societies, duke it out in the ballot box. You know, half the country is going to you know be happy at the end of tonight. The other half sad. <laughs> You know, by the way it, it turned out, uh, doesn't mean that uh, uh, one is always more right or wrong than the other if, in fact, the political common good is what they all have in view. Um, good people can disagree as to particular decisions made and still, in the disagreement with it, still follow the decision that was made, as long as it's not sinful or injurious to, 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 to someone. Tax rates, you know, they go up and down. You know, where to put a road, you know, uh, these are the kinds of things. I mean, this is like the nitty-gritty of, of the exercise of political authority. Uh, not everybody's going to agree. Some are going to seem to benefit more than others, um, sometimes in some of those decisions. But that's that's what gets worked out you know, over time. But there's a constant pursuit of you know, being more just in the kinds of decisions you know, that are made. And sometimes it's it's the incomplete decisions of, of one time or one generation that, that make possible more just and more complete decisions of, of the next. Some things are only possible in certain times and places. Whereas if that's established, then the next step can be taken by the next generation. Can we have one more question. Mm-hmm. Gentleman right behind you. Yeah. When a certain position to voters begins to treat voting as a community transaction mm-hmm. and pursuing that self-interest, it seems like that would sort of push people on the upper end to be treated. <laughs> Um, I Mean short of heaven, you know, (laughs) this isn't (laughs) going to attain perfectly Um, And Aquinas was enough of a realist to know that um, I mean human societies uh, Rise and fall and when they do rise, they're probably destined in time to fall. Why well because of uh, original sin (laughs) pride Um, Grace will get you far Actually, nature gets you far. Uh, Grace will even get you a little further, but the grace that we're given is not for the perfection of the temporal good, but rather to elevate and perfect us for a good to be enjoyed in the next life. And so there's always going to be something incomplete about kind of the pursuit of the temporal. It represents a real good, and it's a real principle of our flourishing. But because it's not ultimately our final good, you know, it, it will not satisfy every need and longing of the human heart. Um, every society kind of, uh, established in order to, to pursue the common good in a particular place with a particular people already has something within it. Um, I don't want to say the seeds of its downfall, that's too dramatic. Uh, But um, a certain weakness or incompleteness that's going to obtain you know someday uh, that's where the society implicated there's going to pass a point of no return in terms of okay needing to start over again. And that's what happens over and and over. So that's I think for Aquinas that's not a surprise and in fact. This is the whole city of God. I mean, this is what Augustine is trying to deal with. You have grace. The church has kind of taken over. You know, and within 40 years of, of Christianity becoming the official uh, religion of the empire, Rome is sacked. Well, what's that about? You know, so Augustine has to kind of figure out what's going on here, uh, and that's that's uh, in large part what he's what he's trying. So kind of the fall of political society or the fall of kind of our social structures isn't a sign of um, kind of the, the weakness of, uh, uh, of of grace, but rather just kind of a temporary, or no, I don't want to say temporary, the imperfect quality of, the, of that good, I would say. And that's why the Psalms say "I mean, put no trust in princes and help them, right? yeah. Not because they're untrustworthy, but because the good that they're, uh, Commissioned by God to protect is not our ultimate good. Yeah, That—that's, I think, that kind of the deeper meaning of that of that song. All right.
0: Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at wwwtomisticinstituteorg slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.